Well, hello, Living Hope Church. We are so glad you could join us today. I'm going to ask if you could turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start reading in verse 25 in a moment. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this time in your word, this time in your worship. And Father, we ask for your hand of grace and presence and blessing upon what we do this morning. You would be at work in the hearts and minds of your children. Your spirit would be work inside of our homes, leading and guiding us into the life that you make possible for us. We ask for that wisdom and that grace today in your magnificent name we pray. Amen. Well, guys, we're going to begin reading in verse 25. But if you go back a verse, the last verse of the previous section that we read in verse 24, Paul tells us that we need to begin to live lives of people who have been made in the image of God in righteousness and in holiness. Every human being is made in the image of God. And that's, that's a big idea. It's a glorious idea. And oftentimes when we think about being made in the image of God, we think of the kinds of capacities that we have as human beings. And these capacities are unique to us and they reflect the capacities and the actions of God. We think of our ability to reason. We think of our capacities for emotion, morality, creativity, the kinds of things we can do because we are human beings. And all of that is true. But it turns out that being made in the image of God is more than just our capacities. It also means that we were created to live a certain kind of life. As Paul says, the life in the image of God in righteousness and holiness. Now think again about a family structure and the way parents will often um, instruct children. Sometimes parents will say this kind of thing to, to kids. In this home, we don't act like that. Here in this family, we use this kind of language. We don't use this kind of language. We treat people in a certain kind of way. Now, when parents do that kind of thing, this is what they're doing. They're taking their family unit. They're taking their family name, so to speak, and they're filling it with moral ideas. They're filling it with behaviors. We in this home, we act this way. We don't act that way. And so what it does is it begins to create a certain kind of family resemblance. And this resemblance that's not just biological, but it's family resemblance that's moral. It's family resemblance that's behavioral. And just as a family does that inside of their biological unit, so there is a certain kind of family resemblance when it comes to being a part of the body of Christ part of being the family of God, what it means to live like Christ in the kingdom of God. Our passage of scripture today is chapter 4 ends and we slide into chapter 5 eventually. This is Paul's way of talking about this is how we live here. We're part of the family of God, so this is what we do. This is how we treat each other. This is what we consider to be valuable in our relationships with each other. And the structure from this verse in chapter 4 through the end of chapter 4 is actually pretty simple. And the structure goes like this. Paul says, don't do this. Do this instead. And here's why. So that really is. That's pretty simple. That's pretty straightforward. And it's important enough 
that Paul, every time he does that, he gives us reasons why. Here's why you should behave this way. Here's why you shouldn't behave this way. Now, the big picture reason for why we act this way as the family of God is that we're living out the image of God. We're living out the kingdom of God inside of the kingdoms of this world. We're growing in the love of Christ with each other. Those are the big picture reasons. But it's powerful to me that every one of these behaviors has its own reason why. And those reasons can actually be pretty powerful for us to try to understand. So let's begin reading in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 25. And we're going to read verses 25, 26, and 27. So here's what Paul says. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Therefore, having put away falsehood. Again, you go back to that previous passage in chapter 4, and Paul uses this powerful language he uses a couple of times. We need to put off a certain kind of life. In our sin, we are covered in ratty, in rotten clothing. In Christ, we've been given a brand new and beautiful wardrobe. So now we take off a certain kind of lifestyle, and we put on another. So here he says, now, since you've put off falsehood, Begin to speak the truth with one another because we belong to each other inside of the family of God. So we see the pattern here already. Don't do this. Do this instead, and here is why. So don't speak in falsehood. Don't lie to each other. Instead of that, what I need you to do is learn how to live and speak in the truth with one another. Why? Because we're all part of the same family. We are members of the same body of Christ. Paul says this kind of thing in a few places in his epistles. One of those places that comes across pretty clearly is Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. And he says this, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practice. That's pretty straightforward. Don't lie to each other. You've put that life away. And now we have another kind of life to live. So I want to think for a minute about what truth does, how truth works, and specifically inside of our relationships. So here we're not talking about uh, mathematical truth or scientific truth. We're talking about living in truth with one another as opposed to lying to each other or being deceptive with each other, speaking falsehood with one another. So living truthfully inside of relationships. What does truth do for us as members of the body of Christ? Here's one way of thinking about that. Speaking truth respects the people around me and it respects the character of God. Speaking truth, living in truth with each other, respects other people, and it respects the character of God. Now, sometimes that concept is a little abstract, and maybe it's a little bit hard to sort of wrap ourselves around. So maybe an easier way into this topic is through the lens of what lying does. 
the kinds of unusual destruction that falsehood and lying leads to inside of our relationships and with Paul's focus here, especially inside of our relationships with the family of God. Lying leads to really unusual kinds of destruction. So if speaking truth respects people and respects the character of God, lying to each other and living in deception breaks both of those things. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 28, the first half of that verse, I still remember when I first became aware of this passage. I probably read it several times before, but I became aware of it. And it was a verse in its context that has stuck with me ever, ever since. The, the concept is so significant, it just stuck with me. Proverbs 26, verse 28 says this, a lying tongue hates its victims. That's pretty heavy-duty stuff. A lying tongue is a certain kind of spite. It's a certain kind of hate. It's a certain kind of will to do harm to another person. A lying tongue hates its victims. So when we lie to each other in relationship, we begin to betray that relationship. We begin to use that relationship for things it wasn't intended for. We use other people. So we betray an honest relationship that could otherwise be productive and and friendly and even a spiritual relationship. So we betray relationship. There's slander in lying, the kind of destruction that comes through deliberate lying about another person. So we lie about someone else and we want people to believe what's false about them. And we do that either in order to cause harm to them Or whether we intend it or not, it actually does cause harm to them. A lying tongue hates its victims. So the destruction of a a, um, reputation where that reputation does not deserve to be destroyed. This This is bad stuff. This is slander. When we lie about other people, we might actually do a certain kind of harm where we remove opportunities from them. If we've created a false impression about them to other people, we've lied about them, and they now believe falsehood instead of the truth, we've ruined their reputation, we may actually remove opportunities from them. So we can actually do significant damage to people when we live in deception or we lie about each other. Proverbs just says it's a certain kind of hatred toward another person. So speaking truth respects people, relying breaks that, and it respects the character of God when we speak it truth and live in truth. So it turns out as you hunt through scripture for this concept and the character of God, God actually hates falsehood. He can't stand it. It actually cuts against the very nature of God himself. Scripture tells us in a couple of places that God cannot lie. It is literally against his nature to lie. So if I am interested in some version of family resemblance, that my behavior will somehow remind other people of the behavior of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, then I'm going to want to be aimed in that direction as well. That truth becomes more important to me than whatever I think I can gain through deception or lying. We read Proverbs 26 earlier. 
Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, listen to how this is put in this passage of Scripture. He actually says this, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes or pride, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. My goodness, that's quite a list. And this is a proverbial list, and it says, now these are seven things that represent the kinds of things that God hates. And in the list of seven, the writer of Proverbs lists lying twice. A lying tongue, just someone who is given to lying, someone who, for whom lying is natural, they use lying to get their way. God can't stand that. It cuts against the nature of God. And then it says, a false witness who breathes out lies. That's a kind of courtroom setting where we're aimed at the truth. Is someone guilty or innocent of a certain deed or behavior, a false witness creates the wrong impression and the wrong conclusion, and God can't stand the innocent considered guilty. I mean, this is quite the list. In a list that includes murder, God twice includes lying. So speaking truth respects people and respects the nature of God. So why is it? Paul says, we've put away falsehood. Don't behave this way anymore. Don't lie to each other. Do this instead. Learn how to speak the truth to one another. What's the why? Well, because we all belong to the same family. We're now part of the family of God. So the flip side of the consequences of falsehood is that being truthful in our relationships with each other can help actually build respect between each other. It can actually help build trust between each, each other. And part of something, guys, that I have learned, this might sound a little, bit, a little bit out there to some, but I've learned this in my life. Where there are open and honest and trustworthy relationships inside of the body of Christ, it actually creates a space where we are free to grow as God has intended us to grow. It creates a space where you and I together can find God's will and purpose and work together for God's will and purpose. It's a freedom inside of our lives where there is truthfulness instead of lying or deception. Now remember, chapter 4, verse 15. Earlier on in this passage, in this chapter, Paul actually said, rather than all of the cunning and deceit and manipulation that is used to speak falsehood, rather than that, here we're learning how to speak truth in love. We can't give up on either of those, truth and love. But in the body of Christ, that's the direction that we are headed when it comes to falsehood and truth. Guys, where trust and respect are broken through lying and deception, I am no longer free in that relationship. I am no longer safe inside of that relationship. Where there could have been friendship and mutuality, there is distrust of one another. And if I'm going to be completely honest with you guys, there have been times in my life through the years where I have just learned the best thing for me to do in this relationship for this period of time is to push it to arm's length. 
and just have a bit of a distance because I know that if I'm not careful with that relationship, it becomes unsafe for me and for those around me. When those relationships are especially difficult, sometimes we have to actually sever those things because it's unsafe. So where there could be nearness and closeness and mutuality, now there's distrust and there's this distance. But I've got to tell you this as well, something I'm learning, continuing to learn in my own heart. Even where I have done that to protect myself and those around me especially, it is then incumbent upon me to not use that as an excuse for unforgiveness. I can't use that as an, unex- as an excuse for remaining angry at people. And that's where we're going next. But you see, this is the destruction that lying can often bring inside of our lives. And Paul says here in the body of Christ, we don't treat people like that. So truth and truthfulness in our relationships ends up acting like an antidote to manipulation and deception. Now, there are a lot of reasons why we lie to each other. Manipulation and deception are just kind of two of the big ones. When we manipulate through falsehood, we actually begin treating other people as tools for our own purposes. We use them to get what we want, and we quit using them as valuable in and of themselves. That's what manipulation does. That's why we feel used when we discover that we may have been manipulated. And fixing this kind of manipulation requires a mixture of truthfulness and humility. Humility in the Christian life is this powerful virtue that helps us actually figure out how to do this kind of thing. Paul tells the Philippians that I am supposed to think like Christ, and here's how Christ thought. I need to learn to treat everybody else as more important than myself. And when I learn that, manipulation becomes impossible. Manipulation becomes distasteful to me, When now there is this mixture of truthfulness and humility inside of my heart at work in our relationship. So truth is an antidote to manipulation. It's an antidote to deception. We deceive because we know we've done something that we shouldn't have. Or we've done something that we know would be harmful and probably shouldn't have been done in the first place. And so deceitfulness requires... It, it requires misleading talk, and it requires misleading actions. So living like Christ requires living truthfully with each other, especially with those who are in closest relationship to us. Because in the irony of our most intense and our closest relationships, that's where we are most tempted to deceive So we have to be very careful about that and now live in this truthfulness and love that the Apostle Paul has already talked about. So you see, Paul says, we we can't live this. In this family, we don't do this anymore. You used to do this all the time. This used to be normal. But we have to learn not to do that. So we can't live in falsehood. We need to live and speak truthfully with each other. And the next step he takes, if we think that the first step was hard enough, the second step he takes is, and in your anger, don't sin. Don't let your anger turn into sin with each other. Let's read those two verses again, verses 26 
and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Be angry and do not sin. Now, this is a tricky verse of Scripture. And sometimes it's used to justify things that it's not intended to justify. So we have to think about what Paul is getting at. So if we, if we dig into what Paul is writing about here when it comes to anger, and we combine that with what Jesus says about anger, and with what the rest of the New Testament says about anger, I think what is probably the best way of understanding that phrase, be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, I think probably the best way of understanding that is something like this. Do not sin in a context where anger is likely to be present. Do not sin in a context where anger is likely to be present. In fact, there's another translation of this verse that puts it like this. Don't let your anger make you sin and don't stay angry all day. I like that. Now, here's why I think this passage of Scripture is sometimes tricky for us. And we think it allows things that I don't think it's intended to allow in us. Whether we think this way explicitly or not, we read a verse of Scripture that says, be angry and do not sin. And we begin to do this kind of math. We begin to think something like this. Well, that means that I'm allowed to be angry, but probably I'm only allowed to be angry at the right kinds of things. And then the next step that we all take is this. Well, it just turns out that I'm always angry at only the right things. So therefore, everything I'm angry about is okay. We tend to do that kind of math in our head, and what ends up happening is we expand our license for anger when in fact what Paul is doing is he's putting incredible limits on our anger. Where you're likely to be angry in one of those situations, Paul says, here's what you need to do. Don't sin. And then you can't be angry, even if you are angry, you can't be angry for long. So instead of this verse of scripture saying you can be angry about all of this because it's okay, it actually puts all these limits on anger inside of our hearts. And the limits are important for us. Paul's concern is that when we are ready to be angry, that we do not slip into sin. And here's what happens with anger. Anger very quickly turns into destructive emotions and behaviors. It's just the nature of anger. We really are playing with fire when there's anger boiling inside of our souls. So think about it like this for a minute or two. Anger is an emotion that we all have. There was a a pastor I grew up with for several years, and uh, a lot of the pastors I worked with I considered mentors. And some of you will remember uh, Pastor Earl Waugh and something that he used to say all the time I'm reminded of when I read stuff like this. He used to say, we can't keep the birds from flying over our heads, but we can keep them from nesting in our heads. It's kind of a funny aphorism, but the point of that is this. It's anger is an emotion that all of us have. The real question, I think, is what is the relationship between my anger and the heart of Jesus Christ? 
What is the relationship between the anger that is inside of my heart right now and the actual heart of Jesus Christ? Now, keep in mind, I'm not a counselor, and counselors can actually help you deal with specific issues and anger and where it comes from and how to, um, how to deal with that in a healthy fashion. I'm a pastor, and what I am trying to do is I am trying to connect the things that I believe are true in Scripture with the way that I see that the human heart works. Emotion is an anger that we all have. But the question now is what is the relationship between my anger and the heart of Jesus Christ? Paul even warns us that anger can very quickly turn into an opportunity for our enemy, for the devil. Anger quickly turns into an opportunity for our enemy to create corruption and decay and sin inside of my heart and mind, the way I think about people, the way I talk about people, it very quickly can turn into an enemy's op- the enemy's opportunity to create division between me and other people. You see, anger is an opportunity for Satan to put a leash around my neck and pull me in his direction. Don't let that happen, Paul said, because it's an opportunity for the devil Paul says, be angry and do not sin. So does this allow, and this is, this is often the question that is, that is asked of me and others when, when we think about this passage. Well, is Paul allowing righteous anger? That You know, if Christ's anger is something that I can be angry at the same thing. I'm, the, here's the answer I'm going to give you. The answer is yes and no. And here's what I mean by that. Anger is sometimes a response to injustice or perceived injustice. Something we think that's been done to us that is an injustice that should be fixed and that can just raise anger inside of our souls or something we even see being done in the culture around us or somebody else and it raises anger in our souls and sometimes that can actually motivate us to fix something that we think is wrong. Um, Oftentimes anger is actually a signal to me for how things are broken inside of my own soul. So anger is a signal for these things, how I'm responding to something, what's going on inside of my heart and mind. But guys, I believe what is the more important issue, or the more important question here though, is whether or not anger can sit in my soul, can sit in my heart without turning into sin. And I believe the answer to that question is no. That if I allow anger to sit in my heart for too long, it will inevitably turn into some form of sin. Listen to how James puts this. James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. That's important because often anger is an instantaneous response to a situation. James says, but you and I, as children of God, we should be slow to anger because anger is dangerous and it's difficult. The next thing James says is this, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And here's the catch. I'm a human, so all of my anger is human anger. And James says, you've got to be really careful with that because it will not produce the kind of righteousness that God wants. 
inside of my own life, inside of my relationships with other people. So guys, I'm going to push us a little bit this morning. I'm going to lay some things on the table for us to think about and pray about that I think might actually push us in directions that we haven't thought about before. And here's this question. Can I learn to address situations that make me angry without anger? Can I learn to address situations that normally or always make me angry but without anger? And I believe the answer to a question like that is, I can and I should. Where a situation is present that would normally cause anger in my heart, Paul says, don't sin. Don't stay angry for long because it becomes an opportunity for the devil. James says that kind of anger just doesn't produce God's righteousness. It's not family resemblance in the image of God. But if I'm going to learn how to do this, learning to do this requires a proactive trust and confidence in God. I'm going to have to pay a lot of attention to. I'm going to have to spend a lot of time praying about and thinking about what it means to trust God with these situations, to trust God with these things that do cause anger in my heart, to have confidence that God is going to take care of me in this particular situation. So guys, anger often turns into the will to harm, the will to do someone else harm, or the will for harm in someone else's life. We think, well, they need to get what's coming to them. And if I'm not going to do it, man, I hope somebody else does. This is sometimes why we are immediately hurt when we've learned that someone is angry at us. Because it implies sometimes that sense of will to harm. Anger can also turn into all the wrong kinds of control. Where this person's done this or said this or caused this series of events to happen, well, they need to be told this, and these folks need to be told that, and this group of people need to hear this so that I can control the situation and bring it back to what I think is right. The will to do harm and the need to control are not in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> Galatians chapter 5, neither of these are in the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the righteousness that God desires, right? Neither of these things, the will to do harm or the need to control, are the kinds of ideas that were in the mind of Jesus Christ. So guys, look at it like this for a minute. Often our lack of trust in God is the belief that he will either he either will not or cannot provide for us in our time of need. Our lack of trust in God is sometimes the belief that either he will not or cannot provide for us in our time of need. So when something makes me angry, Paul is telling me, don't let that turn into sin. Don't let it last very long. It's an opportunity for the devil. James says it's not going to produce the kind of righteousness that God desires. So when something makes me angry, can I learn to open my hands and let God handle this situation for me instead of me trying to handle this situation? And guys, I'm telling you, this is hard stuff to do. But here it is in Scripture, and I believe that these are the things that thick fix the dysfunction and the sin that sits inside of the human soul. 
Am I going to be able to open my hands at that moment and allow God in his sovereignty to now handle whatever the situation is? I'm only going to be able to do that if I am learning how to trust God with the situation. Only if I'm learning how to trust God even with myself and even with my own well-being. And that's, that's hard to do in those situations. But am I going to be able to learn how to do that, to avoid sin in those situations that would cause me anger. Now, this is not, and understand how I'm saying this, this is not let go and let God. That's, there's a certain kind of passivity about that. I just need to let it go and just see whatever God does. What I'm aimed at and what I think Paul is aimed at here is not passive, but it's active. So instead of let go and let God, what I think is going on is something like this. God needs to replace my anger with things like patience and wisdom and peace and grace. So this is actually an emptying of an old way of life and a refilling of a new way of life. This is very proactive. This is actually asking God to change what normally happens inside of my heart in these situations. It was in, those, in that first verse, I want falsehood replaced with the truth. And now it's, I want the brokenness that comes from anger. I need that replaced with wisdom and grace and love and patience and peace. That's a new way of living. That's not just letting something go. That's a new way of living. It's a new way of thinking. It's a new way of reacting. So now, as that begins to happen in my heart, if I need to act, I can now act in confidence instead of control. I can now act in the confidence of the good, sovereign providence of God in my life instead of my need to control or fix or deal with. And this becomes the removal of anger and the replacement of the life of God inside of my soul. Guys, as we think about these two big topics, truthfulness and anger, can we begin to imagine what this kind of life would actually look like? How things would be different inside of my heart, with my vocabulary, with my thoughts, with my behaviors? Can I begin to imagine how different this life would be? And quite honestly, as I think of this and as I think about my life and how it could be different if Christ had his way in me more and more, I want that kind of family resemblance. I want that kind of thing at work inside of my heart and mind. My need to lie is gone. And my love of truth is so strong that I desire it in all of my relationships. This truth and love that we learn to speak and live in. My anger has actually been replaced with confidence in God's sovereignty and provision. And I can now deal with even the most difficult situations in my life, knowing that I am safe in the love of God. What is that life like? To me, this life is freedom. To me, this life is attractive. Everything else we think is freedom, if we can just fix this, if we can deceive someone long enough to get something done, we think that's freedom. It's not. It's, it's a prison of sin that we live in. 
Guys, this is how big our God is. This is how expansive life with Christ can really be. My love of truth and love of others is such that I can live that way. That I am free from the sin that comes from my anger. Wherever that anger comes from, I can actually be free from the sin that comes from that because of what Christ can do within me. How great is this Savior who is both willing and able to take these sins and these hurts out of my soul and replace them with Him? May it be, guys, in all of our lives. May there be this kind of healing and wholeness that fixes what the enemy uses to pull us apart. And now we can live in the life of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for this time. We're thankful for your word. And God, even when it pushes us in ways that, that convict us, become uncomfortable for us, God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work, lighting this path for us, drawing us nearer to you and the freedom that there is in Jesus Christ. God, I pray this morning that where there needs to be healing in the hearts and minds of your children, grant healing. Father, where there needs to be a complete redirection of attitudes, emotions, and behaviors, May the work of your Holy Spirit be there so that that redirection can happen. So that we here, as the family of God, this is how we treat each other. This is how we honor God. This is how we begin to look like Jesus Christ with each other into the rest of the world. We pray these things in your powerful, gracious, magnificent name. Amen.